Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben DiBiase, sitting in for Ben Broatmarkle. Coming up on the program, we'll talk with archaeologist Pete Sinelli about the indigenous inhabitants and his archaeological fieldwork being done in the Bahamas. The objective was really to give our anthropology majors an opportunity to get into the field and get a little bit of field experience, learn some basic archaeological techniques. We'll learn about the Orange County Regional History Center's archive and research facility, our mission is to collect and preserve Central Florida history. We cover a seven-county region, Orange County, and all the counties that touch Orange. And we'll look back at the life and legacy of a longtime Florida resident and founder of the Mosquito Beaters, George Speedy Harrell. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. One of the closest island chains to the Florida Peninsula is the Bahamas Archipelago. Although the two regions share much of their histories, from both being British colonies to harboring maroon slave settlements, the pre-Columbian communities of Florida and the Bahamas probably never met. We have no evidence that anyone from Florida came to the Bahamas. Dr. Pete Sinelli is associate lecturer with the Department of Anthropology at the University of Central Florida. The Bahamas were colonized by a much longer and time-consuming route. The people who lived in the Bahamas, the Lucayan Taino, uh, Lucayan uh, means island man. So the island man Taino, Taino means good people in their language. The island man good people uh, who occupied the Bahamas uh, were descended from populations that came all the way from the Amazon. Uh, they spoke an Arawakan language, and the Arawakan uh, language family uh, still has languages today that are spoken in the uh, in the Circumamazon region. So these people came uh, all the way up from South America through the Greater Antilles, uh, Hispaniola, Cuba, uh, and possibly Puerto Rico, but certainly Hispaniola. We've got lots and lots of archaeological evidence that shows uh, a, an ongoing relationship with their origin point uh, in Hispaniola and into the Bahamas that way. So even though Florida was much, much closer, uh, there isn't any evidence that people from Florida ever made it to the Bahamas. Uh, and if they did, they didn't leave any evidence that uh, they stayed around for any length of time or had any sort of uh, impact whatsoever on the populations that did live there. He explains that this migration pattern did not, however, occur by accident. There may be this notion that the people who colonized the Caribbean were friends of Gilligan or something and got blown off course and wound up there having to eke out a living uh, because they're castaways. Uh, in contrast to that idea, the island colonization process is, is very deliberate and very intentional and proceeds uh, according to a plan that is 
organized and developed by members of the society who have something to gain from the colonization process. By the time Europeans began visiting and eventually settling in the Caribbean, the indigenous populations in the Bahamas and Florida shared a similar fate. When the Spanish reached Hispaniola in the late 15th century in the 1490s, estimates vary, um, but there quite likely were millions of people that were living on that island. 800,000 to 4 million are estimates that have been bandied around. And a census that was conducted in the 1520s uh, by the Spanish indicated that, uh, that indeed most of that population was gone. Probably sometime in the 17th and perhaps even early 18th century that the Taino people of the Bahama archipelago finally went away. This was a problem for the Spanish, who had constructed a system of production reliant upon indigenous slave labor. The Ecomendia system, which is one uh, of, of forced labor uh, that was imposed by the Spanish on the Taino people, when that disrupted the Taino economy and made it harder for the Taino to feed themselves in addition to all of the uh, stress loss of health and exposure to disease, um, exhaustion from overwork and things like that that were uh, part and parcel of, you know, what was de facto slavery. It really did wreck the entire culture. When the indigenous populations of larger Caribbean islands, such as Hispaniola, had declined sharply, the Spanish needed to look elsewhere for a source of labor. Our good friend Ponce de Leon was in Puerto Rico and also in Hispaniola, and decided he was going to strike out on his own. Uh, and indeed, the uh, mission that he took, the voyage that he took to, the, on which he eventually uh, encountered uh, the peninsula of Florida, uh, was designed as a slave raid into the Bahamas. That's why he went. One major difference in the colonization story in both Florida and the Bahamas was the sudden loss of interest by the Spanish shortly after initial contact. This probably led to a longer existence for the people who lived in the Bahamas because they were outside of the Spanish sphere of influence. The Spanish didn't care that much, so they didn't go up there that much. Uh, there is evidence that they did make slave raids into the Bahamas, and the Spanish particularly valued Lucayans, Bahamian Taino, uh, as pearl divers because part of their adaptation was to set traps on reefs, and you had to go down there and do that by hand, and you had to hold your breath. So they thought that they could enslave these folks and take them down to the coast of Venezuela and have them be pearl divers. So there was some of that. But in terms of resources, in terms of actually setting up Spanish cities or Spanish settlements in the Bahamas, they wanted nothing to do with it. One story often associated with Ponce de Leon's brief encounter with the Taino people of the Bahamas is retold here by Sinelli, and it illustrates a keen understanding by these indigenous inhabitants of what the Spanish encroachment probably meant for their long-term survival. The story goes that uh, Ponce just kind of bypassed the Bahamas on his way to Florida because he uh, ran into an old man in the Bahamas, who said he was the last one and there wasn't anybody left. And this was in the 15-teens. I think it was 15-17, 15-18. And uh, there wasn't anybody left, and don't waste your time here. Just keep on going there, Spanish guy. And so Ponce took him at his word and supposedly went on his way And during this period that he, uh, he encounters the Florida Peninsula. 
when you think about it from the old man's perspective, even if that anecdote is true, what's the old man going to say to Ponce? Okay, well, we know that you Spaniards come here and steal our people and take them off to go fish pearls out. So, of course, I'm going to give you directions to where my family is. Of course he isn't. So he's not going to tell Ponce where the people are, number one. Number two, the Spanish ships and the Spanish technology at the time was such that they could not reach where the populations of Taino were in the Bahama Archipelago. These folks lived on bank systems, and they lived in environments that were protected by reefs, not because they wanted to hide from the Spanish shipping, but because the reefs and the banks were where the food was. So these people lived in areas that were not accessible to the Spanish galleons. The Spaniards had to bypass these islands. They could not go in and explore these islands. And we have, including sites that I've excavated, uh, any number of radiocarbon dates and a growing corpus of radiocarbon dates that show that Taino settlements were alive and well, well into the 1600s in the Bahama Archipelago. Dr. Sinelli has been working for years to uncover the lives and cultures of these indigenous peoples, and he guides archaeological field schools to the islands regularly. The objective was really to give our anthropology majors an opportunity to get into the field and get a little bit of field experience, learn some basic archaeological uh, techniques, because everybody who's an anthropology major knows that if you want to do anthropology for a living, then the undergraduate degree is just the very beginning, and you'll be going on to grad school. Quite frankly, grad schools uh, favor individuals who have field experience. Even if uh, they are cultural anthropology, biological anthropology, anthropology is a field science. And uh, if these students can demonstrate that they can successfully handle a field project and, and do very well uh, under these kinds of different conditions in a different part of the world, out in the jungles of the wild Caribbean, that gives them an advantage that they wouldn't otherwise have if they don't have that experience. But doing archaeological work on these low-lying sites presents some unique challenges. You know, these, these people lived right on the beach or very close to it. And uh, wave action and hurricane action has been a part of the history of these sites since they were occupied. And the people knew that uh, when they moved there. These were not fools. They knew all about hurricane season quite well, thank you. And they tried to structure uh, their society and, and, and choose sites, not always, but in a lot of cases where there was at least some shelter, it was a little bit on higher ground. But the Palmetto Junction site that I work at now is at most 150 centimeters above the high tide line. And if sea level comes up, it's going to erode into the ocean and it's going to be gone. Uh, there are lots of sites uh, throughout the Bahamas, some that I've worked at, some that uh, I know that uh, I know people who have worked there, where these sites are being eroded into the ocean. Unfortunately, if sea level comes up, that's going to continue, and there are going to be more sites that are impacted by that. Dr. Pete Sinelli is Associate Lecturer of Anthropology at the University of Central Florida, and the work that he and his students are doing in the Caribbean help us to better understand the lives of the region's earliest inhabitants.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben DiBiase. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. So this is the stacks on this side. Over against the back wall to the left is the start of our archive. Um, it pretty much goes along that entire wall. Um, along the south wall is kind of more of our like media collection. Um, Climate control machinery drones over the archivists and historians such as Dan Bradfield, who work inside the Joseph L. Breckner Research Center's archival storage facility at the Orange County Regional History Center in Orlando we're starting to get closer to it, so it's starting to get louder. Um, four cabinets of uh, video cassettes, DVDs, oral histories on cassettes and real tape, um, some digital hard drives, basically miscellaneous digital media um, and analog media, um, an entire cabinet full of transcripts from old collection drives that include World War II, Winter Park, um, you know, various cities and communities in the area. Um, From the pioneer settlements of Orange County to the recent Pulse nightclub tragedy, the History Center chronicles the complex and fascinating change that has occurred throughout Central Florida's communities and environments and continue to shape our understanding of the region today. Our mission is to collect and preserve Central Florida history. We cover a seven-county region, Orange County and all the counties that touch Orange. Leslie Ann Drake is curator of collections for the History Center and explains that although headquartered in downtown Orlando, the scope of the collection covers much more. We are located downtown Orlando in the 1927 courthouse. Um, this was not uh, the first courthouse. We actually have on the third floor a preserved courtroom, and many people in the community um, remember either practicing law or being a judge here or coming here for court cases. Um, there was also an annex to this building in uh, what is now Heritage Square that was demolished uh, when this was renovated in 2000 to become the museum. So uh, we do cover quite a large area, so that can be a challenge. But by offering workshops to other local institutions, by forming relationships and trying to make connections in the community, we can hopefully uh, preserve that history just as well as we do the history of Orlando, where we are situated. The History Center offers a number of public outreach programs that help to fulfill their mission as an historical resource for the entire community. For Preservation Week this year, we offered two free workshops for anyone interested in learning how to preserve their collections. We offered Preservation on a Dime as well as our Photo Preservation Workshop. And we are going to continue to offer workshops like those. And if people are interested in doing a workshop with us, let us know. Uh, we're happy to um, design workshops around topics that people are interested in. 
We have a number of different projects going on. One is the redesign of our permanent exhibits. Uh, we are researching the artifacts and the stories that we want to feature in the redesign. We are also working on articles for our historic magazine called Reflections. Visitors can pick up a free Reflections magazine or become a member and have it be mailed to you. We have original scholarship and artwork featured in those magazines. We also have a number of upcoming exhibits, including some mini rotating exhibits that are in our lobby. Each month we have a new topic that allows us to feature a part of our collection that normally doesn't get featured. And I'm also working on some uh, presentations for our Lunch and Learn series. The one I'm going to be doing is Central Florida in the Movies, which will tie into one of our mini exhibits. They employ a specialized group of staff, volunteers, and interns to help complete their various projects. We are very lucky to have a full-time oral historian. That was a position that has been created actually within the last year. So we are still figuring out what kinds of things we're able to do now. But oral histories have been a very big part of the History Center for many years. Um, and we have had various collections initiatives that involve going out into the communities and researching and talking to members and collecting oral histories. We have a number of volunteer and internship opportunities, which you can find out about by going on our website or by contacting us. We offer a general collections internship as well as an oral history internship, both here on site at the History Center, where students and others can learn about how to do this work. You can find out more by going to our website, www.thehistorycenter.org. Some of Leslie Ann's favorite collections include ephemeral documents from a few of Orlando's more colorful characters. One collection in particular that I have been uh, looking at recently is the brochure for an early Orlando taxidermist named A.M. Nicholson. He has a lovely uh, advertisement for all of the different dozens of animal species that he sells. One of those is alligators, which are priced by length. And it's a great example of some of the interesting professions um, in early Orlando and, and how people were taking advantage of the wild nature of this area. Archives can often seem like quiet, dark places that are rarely accessed by non-historians. But the History Center's patrons come from all over the community. Our researchers really run the gamut. Some are students, some are teachers, some are educators. Others are writing books. Um, we've even worked with artists who um, use our um, maps and documents to create original artwork. We can assist people um, with voter records, various Orange County records, such as city directories, um, maps. We have a set of um, Orlando Sanborn fire insurance maps as well. Um, all these things can help you track down information about where your ancestors lived, where their house was, uh, where they were working, where they were living. We can also kind of direct people to more resources uh, if they don't know where to start. The staff and volunteers at the History Center strive to provide the most accurate historical information in their museum and research facility, but some stories prove a bit difficult to debunk. I will dispel a quick myth. Um, Ted Bundy was tried in the annex, which was demolished. Um, in our courtroom, we have a table where someone has carved the name Ted Bundy, um, but that is not really Ted Bundy's signature. Um, it's a question we get a lot. Um, so that is that is not uh, original. Um, he did not carve that. Um, he actually 
never set foot in this part of the courthouse. It was only in the annex. Helping people find and connect to their local and regional history in a variety of ways is what makes the Orange County Regional History Center's archive a vital part of the Central Florida community. This is Florida Frontiers. History is often best told through the stories of its everyday people. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science and has this report on the life and legacy of George Speedy Harrell. Brevard County native George Speedy Harrell was a fixture at the Florida Historical Society's Library of Florida History at 435 Brevard Avenue in Cocoa. Speedy was born in 1927, and in 1948, he worked as a post office superintendent in the building, constructed by the WPA in 1939. After the Florida Historical Society moved into the building in 1997, Speedy Harrell could be found there almost every day, working as a volunteer. Speedy was well-known not only at the Library of Florida History, but throughout Bavard County and beyond. In 1986, George Speedy Harrell organized an annual gathering for people who lived in Brevard County prior to 1950. I'm George L. Harrell, nickname of Speedy, and I started the Mosquito Beaters in 1986. I thought it would be great if we had one day that we got together and not at a funeral or a wedding or anything that way. My daughter, was Wanda Spear, was running the Kiwanis Hall out on Peachtree Street, and I got a room there, and we typed up a, a letter that we were going to have a meeting to see if such a thing would be feasible. The room was supposed to accommodate 60 people. We had 100 show up, and they wanted to get something started right away. So... The uh, first gathering was a covered dish deal. We changed that for the following year that we would have the event catered, and that's the start of it. Speedy Harrell named the group the Mosquito Beaters because of the daily struggle well known to Floridians, the seemingly constant swatting of mosquitoes. Florida pioneers lashed together palm fronds to brush away swarms of mosquitoes. Speedy Harrell. I don't know how many liars you have talked to that tells how bad mosquitoes were, but they were worse than that. <laughs> we uh, fought them with a palm frond, and the stores sold what we called smudge powder. It was a, some kind of insecticide, and it would smolder, and it gave off a scent that the mosquitoes would leave, and then you had a, a little spray gun that you could spray with... Uh, Flit, what is the name of one of them? It was a, a, a constant battle. Mosquitoes was a terrible problem prior to the DDT. The Mosquito Beaters group was originally meant for people who lived in Brevard County prior to 1950, but in later years, Speedy relaxed the rule. Well, when we first started, we said before 1950 had lived here, 
But if we stayed with that before 1950, they'd all be dead but me, and I'd be there talking to myself. <laughs> but we later got to define that anybody was a mosquito beater if they didn't put in to tell us how they'd done it back home when we would have the gather. <laughs> in the 1950s, when Speedy Harrell was a young man, the population of Brevard County tripled due to increased tourism and the emerging space program. In 1948, the Banana River Naval Air Station became Patrick Air Force Base. Ten years later, in 1958, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, was established by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. In 1962, NASA established a space launch center on Brevard County's Cape Canaveral, which had previously been used as a missile testing center. The next year, President Lyndon B. Johnson renamed it Kennedy Space Center in honor of John F. Kennedy. After the arrival of NASA, Brevard County was forever changed. The 1950 date was about the beginning of the space missile test program. Banana River Naval Air Station had been closed down. They reopened it, and it was known as the Joint Long Range Proving Ground. During World War II, the only houses that were built was the Navy built some houses in Rockledge to house some of the Navy personnel and in Cocoa Beach. And that was probably 1949, late 49 or 50. So all the students from Canaveral area, Cocoa Beach, Merritt Island, Rockledge, all came to the one school here in Cocoa. So you knew everyone. I graduated in 1945, and there was 33 in the graduating class. So we figured if we take the date 1950 prior to that, that most everyone would know each other that came to the Mosquito Beaters. The Mosquito Beaters are dedicated to preserving the history of Central Brevard County by collecting photographs and stories, which are included in an annual publication called the Central Brevard Mosquito Beaters Memory Book. The Mosquito Beaters have an office in the Library of Florida History. Speedy Harrell. It didn't start out to be a history group, really. It was just going to be a, a gathering to see friends and, and talk to one another. We probably had a thousand people gathering this time, and we're having difficulty finding a place big enough to have it. And I think it will continue for quite some time. George Speedy Harrell not only founded the Mosquito Beaters, he also started the Space Coast Postcard Collectors Club and the Florida Knife Collectors Club. Speedy was also a military veteran. He served in the Army in World War II, earning an Army of Occupation Medal and a World War II Victory Medal. George Speedy Harrell passed away on April 22, 2019, at the age of 91. During his long life, Speedy made countless friends and impacted many lives. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for this week's program comes from Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben DiBiase, sitting in for Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.